Thank you, Bronnie. Let us pray as we open up God's word. Uh, Father, we're so thankful this morning for a place to meet together, to sing of the joy of the season, that your son has come, that we have a saviour. Lord, we pray as we open your word now, we'd give it our attention, but also that you'd help us to understand. Uh, You'll help us to understand, you'll help us to see Jesus, most of all. And in seeing him, see life and hope. We ask this in his name. Amen. The pulpit is otherwise in use this morning. It's been put to good use. But uh, thank you for coming along this morning. Isn't Christmas a special time of year for most of us? For most of us, we, we can say we truly love the season. There's some, like we found out last week with Darren, who don't like all the carols. There's crazy people like that. Then, then there's people like myself who could probably listen to carols all year round. I'm one of those kinds of people. There's those of us who love the lights and the trees, even the presents, um, and others of us that literally prefer a silent night, something quiet, something isolated, something just nice and natural and somewhere where we're alone. Christmas, though, when we think about all the celebration, all the joy, all the things that that come with it, all the Christmas stories as well, Christmas ultimately, of course, is just about Jesus. It's about the birth of God's only son who's come into our world. We, We love the stories of the angels, of the shepherds, of wise men, and the joy and celebration of of the birth of God's Son. And the Apostle John, who wrote uh, what Brian has read for us this morning, this this book of John, he loved Christmas too. Uh, Not the holiday, not December 25th, uh, that's not what he was on about, but he loved what it meant. He loved what it meant. He loved the fact that God's Son had been born into this world. So when he goes and tells us the Christmas story as we know it, he doesn't go with all the extra details. He certainly doesn't give us anything about trees and gifts and presents and lights and all those sorts of things. He talks a lot about light, sorry. He doesn't talk about angels and shepherds and wise men. He gets straight to the point. Who is Jesus? What are you going to do with him? Will you believe in him? This is what John wanted to present, Jesus, the Son of God. He wanted people to believe in him. There's a whole point of writing about Jesus for John. As he says at the end of his book, he wrote these things so that people might believe in the name of Jesus and in his name have, they'd have life, they'd have eternal life. He wrote so people would believe. So what are some reasons to believe in Jesus from the passage we've read from chapter 1 of John this morning? There's three things I think just want to think of briefly this morning. Some good reasons to believe in Jesus that John wants us to know about. Believe in Jesus because he was an actual person, an actual historical figure with witnesses, with witnesses. We believe in Jesus because he's a source of light and life. There's nowhere else to go. He's someone you either receive or reject. We also believe in Jesus because he truly is fully God and fully man. 
and the only one who makes God fully known to us. So if you think of those three reasons in particular, firstly, I just want to think of Jesus was an actual person in history with witnesses. Last week we looked a bit about uh, the first few verses. We got a lot of metaphors, didn't we? Light and word and all these things going on. Clearly the word and the light was a person, uh, clearly presented as, as someone who was eternal, someone who was the maker of, of the whole universe, someone who'd been with God but also was God. We know by the end, by verse 17, that this person is Jesus Christ. But in verse 6, where our reading starts, when John starts to talk about a man, we're like, okay, finally we're getting who this person is. Who's this word? Who's this light? We stop with the metaphors. We're going to get a man. And we're going to get a name. And when John starts talking about John, we thought, well, he's talking about himself. So he's, but we'll just have to slow down a bit because we might get confused. This person, this man that John starts talking about, the man sent from God whose name was John, uh, that is not the John that's writing. That's the John we would know as John the Baptist. Uh, that's the actual cousin of Jesus. Also himself had a miraculous arrival into this world, born in a miraculous way to parents who at that stage probably sh couldn't have had children. But John, this one, who sent, was sent from God. His whole point, the whole point of his existence, the whole point of his coming, was to prepare the way for Jesus, to point people to Jesus. We'll hear a bit more about him next week. But what does this tell us? Why is the writer John giving us these kinds of details? I think this points to what John's, John the writer's main point is. He wants to show this is a real person we're talking about. This word, this light, we know his name is Jesus, not John. He's real. His real point in history, he came. And just before he came, there was others that came to prepare the way. And they had names. They had identities. They were real people. John, the author, he brings receipts. He brings evidence. He brings testimony. He brings witnesses. And all of these things, among those who are reading this first, when John first wrote this and then it was distributed around, all those who first read this would have gone, I've heard of him. I know of him. I've heard of that happening. As the book of John progresses, all of these things would resonate. There's testimonies, there's witnesses, there's names, there's places. It's all clear. This happened. This actually happened. What John's also concerned with doing is to uh, address some false teaching about Jesus. Already very early, very early in the church, uh, there'd been some false teaching starting to creep in, as it often does. Um, people were saying that, you know, Jesus, Jesus wasn't really fully God. Or even John the Baptist was this promised one that God promised, the Messiah. But John the Baptist himself says... I'm not the Christ, I'm not the Messiah. John here, the author, says he's just a witness. He came to bear witness of the light. He wasn't the light. He wasn't the word from the beginning. He wasn't the word that was with God and was God. He was a messenger, a prophet. Now, he was a man who couldn't be compromised, a man of great standing, a man of great integrity, was this man, John. 
but he wasn't the promised Messiah. The false teachers made him out to be something he wasn't. But John, the author, clearly presents evidence to say Jesus is who he says he is. And part of that is the words of John himself. He who was before me is greater than me. Or uh, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Down in verse 15. So the writer wants people, the writer John, I know we're doing lots of Johns, but the writer John wants people to believe exclusively in Jesus, that he is the only way, the only truth, the only life. So he eliminates all other contenders, starting with one of the best contenders there possibly would have been at Jesus' time, John the Baptist. Jesus is worth believing in because he's a real person. He was a real person that others could testify to seeing, to hearing, to even touching, as John would say, in his other writings. So a good reason to believe in Jesus is because he was an actual historical person, an actual historical figure. And if you don't believe those who've spoken about him, those who've encountered him, if you don't believe them, you're not discount discounting them and their very identities, you're discounting this, this wonder that Jesus has come, that he's real. What's another reason we could believe in Jesus? Another very good reason that we should believe in Jesus as John goes on here. If John the Baptist wasn't the light, we came to bear witness of the light. Verse 9 begins by saying, the true light, the true light who gives light to everyone, is coming in to the world. Jesus is a source of light and life. There's a very good reason to believe in him, to trust in him. He is the source of light and life. And what you do with that knowledge is very important. Uh, there's a time comes around every time of year, maybe you do it too, where you hunt through the shed or your cupboards or whatever you, wherever you look for them for the Christmas lights. And every year I have a little moment of, just a moment of lack of faith. They're not going to work this year. There's no way they're going to work. They're dusty. They have not been cared for. They've usually just been thrown in a box in the open with all access from all sorts of creeping things that leave evidence. There's always this moment just before I plug them in to test. It's like they're not going to work this year. This will be the year it won't work. This will be the year we won't have lights. I always lack a bit of hope. We have lights up. They worked this year. We often approach life like that. Often big things we come up against, we like, it won't work. It's not going to work out. There's no way that this can be solved. There's no way that this can be accomplished. All the efforts we've made over and over, and it's not going to work. There's no point in trying Whatever that situation is, whether it's that, especially this time of year, that, that tense family relationship or broken relationship or that ongoing problem with, with health or finances or that deep emotional struggle that you've been having, we often give up hope because there's no light and we don't think there's going to be any light because where would we find it? We're unsure if our, our hearts 
which to be honest, we care, I care for my heart sometimes as well as I care for my Christmas lights. It's left exposed. A fragile thing is just trampled upon. We often are without hope or light. And when we try different solutions, we try faking it away. We can just fake it, put on a show, get through somehow. We can try drugging it away, substancing it away. We find all sorts of things where we try to find a bit of light. But the thing we need to consider is this true light, the source of light, the source of hope. John keeps talking about light. He's already spoken a great deal in the first few verses. He brings it up again now. And we get a greater picture of what this, who this light is and what it does. The light comes into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him and yet did not know him. He came into the world, the world he made. People didn't know him. He came unto his own people. And his own people did not receive him. This person, this person who is the eternal word, the light, that John is saying is a source of light and life. Why would you not want that? Surely if the eternal word, this eternal word that John's been talking about in these first few verses, this one that brings light to everything, this one that's made everything, if he has come into the world, even the most sceptical of people, surely in the honest moments say that's attractive. That's a wonder. Who doesn't want light? Who doesn't want hope? Who doesn't want life? But he came, but he was not received by all. Even by those who should have known him best, he was rejected. What's a gift that you've rejected? Maybe this isn't a good time of year to talk about this. Some of us don't have the luxury of rejecting gifts at times or exchanging things we don't like. It might create more awkwardness than the effort is worth it. I think one of the worst gifts I received was, was a long time ago as a teenager. Someone who knew me fairly well, someone I was in contact with very regularly. I can't remember which birthday it was, but they gave me a pair of like welding gloves. They weren't even really welding gloves. They were like things you'd use to melt things, like, you know. Anyone who knows me probably knows I'm, I'm not a boiler maker. I'm not a welder. I'm definitely not into melting down minerals and seeing if I can find things. And you say, well, it's the thought that counts, but sometimes there's clearly no thought, is there? And when the gifts that come like that, you sort of think, well... Yeah, there's a bit of a lack of care there, isn't there? Not just lack of thought, there's lack of care, there's lack of affection. And we have no trouble in either rejecting those gifts or putting them away somewhere so we can re-gift them on to someone else who can be blessed at another time. We have no problem with exchanging or rejecting bad gifts. What does John say about Jesus here? He's something to be received or rejected. And it's very 
very dangerous to come to Jesus and say, I see who he is. He's the eternal word, the eternal life. He's God in the flesh, as we'll see in a moment. And to consider rejecting him. You can't exchange it. There's, there's no other place to go for life. There's no other place to go for eternal life. You can't exchange Jesus. There's nothing else to go to. There's no other hope. And as we already said, John wrote this book so that people would believe and have life in Jesus' name. And you cannot read all of this book, the whole Bible. You can't read John. You can't read these verses and remain indifferent about Jesus. You can't. You shouldn't. You either receive him or you reject him. John says there are those who receive him, but to those who did receive him, those who believed in his name, verse 12 tells us, become children of God. What a wonder. Not God's children by race, by nation, by family, or by personal ability or effort, but by God's will, born into his family by God's will, by God's choice. You're not born into it, you're born again, as John will tell us in chapter 3, into new life. And there's a special moment here for us who have believed in the name of Jesus, who have received him, who are children of God. We're part of a family. We're part of God's assures us of eternal life and light and hope and peace. Even when all around us is darkness, death, helplessness, we're part of a family. And that is a gift that we should not treat flippantly. We believe in Jesus because he is light and life. Lastly, we want to believe in Jesus because he is who he says he is. He is fully God and he's fully man. And he's made God fully known to us. This is one of my favourite verses in the Bible, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's my favourite verse, but you might say, well, what does it mean? What does this mean? What's it telling us? We've already established that this word John's been writing about is clearly a person. He's a source of light and life. This person's not John the Baptist, it's not John the author, it's not just anybody. But this word became flesh and lived among us, full of glory, it says. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. So who is this word? It's the Son of God. It's the Son of God, an eternal person. Word, the light became human. The Son of God has become human. God has become human. This is the whole point of John's account, the whole point of Christmas, if you so wish. The whole point of Christianity is that God has spoken to us and his word has come to us. So we see that this word is Jesus, fully God, fully man, Verse 18 will tell us he's made God fully known to us. 
God's spoken to all of human history in various ways at various times. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, In these last days he's spoken to us by his Son. This is the eternal word of God. The clearest revelation of God that we have is his Son, Jesus Christ. If you, as N.T. Wright puts it, if you want to know who God is, look to Jesus. Even if you want to know who a true man should be, look to Jesus. And this is a sticking point for many, though. They can get past maybe the first couple of reasons to believe in Jesus. He's an historical figure, sure. We can accept that. We can accept that he's a, he's a good teacher with good ethics and good morals and lived a good life. We can accept that he's a source of life and light. We can accept that. But many throughout history would disagree that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the stumbling point for so many. Is he fully God and fully man? If you're here this morning, maybe you're struggling with that. Maybe you struggle with that concept of whether God is Jesus is fully God and fully man. I have an interesting person who might disagree with you on that. His name is Santa Claus. Listen to the context first. The thing of Santa Claus as we we know him, probably as I don't want to do any spoilers for any in the church, but as we know him, probably not not quite up to scratch of the historical Santa Claus. St. Nicholas was a bishop in the early church in the early 4th century. And he, it said, attended a church council where this very matter was being discussed. This matter of Jesus' deity. Was he fully God? And the matter of his incarnation. Was he fully man? A man named Arius uh, was presenting that, that Jesus wasn't eternal. He's a created being. He was someone who was made and entered the world as a created being. This was a debate that was going on in this council over several days. Nicholas got a bit sick of it. At some stage, it said, he got up, walked across the room, slapped Arius in the face. That's, that's not a great way to deal with heresy. <clears throat> but it does prove, I think, that the identity of Jesus is not up for debate. It's not. He either is who he says he is or he is not. And if he's not, then history will show that you're in great error to go down that path. And eternity will show you're in even greater error. St. Nicholas was part of that Nicene Council that came up with the Nicene Creed, part of which has this statement. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. The eternal God of the universe has stepped into human history. He isn't a God who remains distant, unloving, uncaring. He moves into our neighbourhood. He comes and lives among us. Lives with us. He lives with us. So he knows our pains. 
He knows our sorrows. He knows our sin. Although being without sin himself. He lived with us, taking on our flesh, taking on a human form, giving great value to our lives and to all human life. He lived with us, fully human, fully God, humbling himself to become small. And I've shared this before in a certain way, but I've been in the unique position of having seen all my children, not just before they were born on an ultrasound, uh, but before they were in their mother's womb. I've seen them microscopic. And the incarnation for me took on a very new and powerful meaning when I saw our first child under a microscope. Because what I thought and all I could think was, my God became that small for me. That small, that helpless, that vulnerable. We think of that of the, of the babe in the manger. But think of the humility it would take for God to be conceived in a womb. That small. And the only reason he did this, the only reason he came, the only reason he lived was it so he could die. The only reason that your mortal, eternal son of God would become mortal, fragile, vulnerable is to die. And to die for our sin, to die for all those things we've done where we have not loved God or others as we should. To take upon himself the payment for our sins. To bring an answer for our suffering and he still lives for us we don't have a savior who is uh, still in a tomb he's still fully god and fully man sitting at the right hand of the father in heaven interceding for us those who believe in his name so the question i have for us this morning is the same way same one that john has in a way as he's writing, will you believe in him? Would you believe in this Jesus, this gift, this gift to be received that combines heaven and earth together for our sake? As the band comes up, I just want to read an old carol that I haven't heard sung too much, but it's got wonderful words. I just want us to stop and meditate on this in closing before we sing a few more songs. Let heaven and earth combine, angels and men agree, to praise in songs divine the incarnate deity, a God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. He laid his glory by, he wrapped him in our clay, unmarked by human eye the latent Godhead lay. Infant of days, here, he here becomes and bore the mild Emmanuel's 